you want to turn in your Bibles didn't mean to do that to Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 We are working our way through the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we've gotten to the church in Philadelphia. So I wrote earlier this week, the home of Rocky Balboa and a great sandwich. So, Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. Listen carefully as this is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us your people. And as we look at the church in Philadelphia, we ask that you would help us. We know that we're not enough like this church. We don't know how we would handle persecution. We don't know if we'd be able to keep your word and not deny you. We don't know if we'd be able to hold fast to the gospel. So Lord, help us to meet Jesus as we see him in these words. And do this for each of us this morning. In Jesus' good name, amen. I wonder how many of you have had opportunity at some point in your life to sing the blues. If you've ever wondered how to sing the blues, then I have the instructions for you this morning. So pay attention, because you might need to know uh, how to do this, how to sing the blues, you know, when it becomes necessary, uh, which it might. Number one, most blues begin, woke up this morning. Two, I got a good woman is a bad way to begin the blues. Lest you stick something nasty in the next line, like, I got a good woman with the meanest face in town. Three, the blues is simple. After you get the first line right, repeat it. Then find something that rhymes, sort of. Kind of like, got a good woman with the meanest face in town, got teeth like Margaret Thatcher, and she weighs 500 pounds. 
The blues are not about choice. You stuck in a ditch, you stuck in a ditch, ain't no way out. Blues cars are Chevys and Cadillacs and broken down trucks. Blues don't travel in Volvos, BMWs, or SUVs. Most blues transportation is a Greyhound bus or a southbound train. Walking plays a major part in the blues lifestyle. So does fixing to die. Teenagers can't sing the blues. They ain't fixing to die yet. Adults sing the blues. And in the blues, adult means being old enough to get the electric chair if you shoot a man in Memphis. <laughs> blues can take place in New York City, but not in Hawaii or any place in Canada. <laughs> Hard times in St. Paul or Tucson is just depression. Chicago, St. Louis, and Kansas City still the best places to have the blues. You cannot have the blues in any place that don't get rain. A man with male pattern baldness ain't the blues. A woman with male pattern baldness <laughs> is. Breaking your leg because you skiing is not the blues. Breaking your leg because an alligator be chomping on it <laughs> is. You can't have no blues in an office or a shopping mall. The lighting is wrong. Go outside to the parking lot and sit by the dumpster. <laughs> blues is not a matter of color. It's a matter of bad luck. Tiger Woods cannot sing the blues. That may have changed recently. <laughs> Good places for the blues, highway, jailhouse, bottom of a whiskey glass. Bad places for the blues, gallery openings, golf courses, and any Ivy League institution. Do you have the right to sing the blues? Yes, if you're older than dirt. No, if you have all your teeth. Yes, if you're blind. No, if you once were blind but now can see. Yes, if you shot a man in Memphis. No, if the man in Memphis lived. Some blues names for women, Sadie, Bessie, Big Mama. Blues names for men, Willie, Little Willie, Big Willie. Persons with names like Sierra, Sequoia, and Rainbow can't sing the blues no matter how many men they shot in Memphis. <laughs> so if you ever get the blues, now you know how to sing. I think the church in Philadelphia could have used this information. They needed these instructions because if ever there was a church that wanted to sing the blues, it was this one. One look at this church and you can tell it doesn't have much going for it. It's small, it's weak, and it's constantly under attack. And all the couples there were named Willie and Bessie. That's probably not true. So if you ever get the blues, you know how to sing. And this church had the blues. They're little, they're weak, they're powerless. They're under attack from a variety of sources. And that brings us to our text. It's written to this church in Philadelphia. And it's written by the only one who can understand their situation. The only one who actually can address their situation. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. To the first blanks in your outline. Verse 7. The Lord Jesus Christ. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
we see immediately the one who is holy and true speaks to this church. The fire and light that radiate from the Son of Man in the opening verses of Revelation 1 symbolizes divine holiness. And Jesus is alluding to the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. And again, in Revelation 1, we see that Jesus holds the keys. It says there in verses 17 and 18, uh, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This reference to the power of the keys, the authority to let in and cast out of the kingdom, may be due to the fact that a number of these Christians in Philadelphia have been excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue. They were Jews who have come to know Jesus as the Messiah, and uh, since then they've been kicked out. They've been excommunicated from the synagogue there in Philadelphia. But the Jews of the synagogue do not hold the true keys to the kingdom of God, and they cannot let in or cast out. Only Christ has that authority. And the one with authority, the one who holds the keys, gives this church some amazing words of approval. Verse 8, some amazing words of approval. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. One feature about the city of Philadelphia was that the city was destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 17, along with Sardis and many of the other cities in that immediate region. And most of the others recovered rather quickly from the disaster, but the aftershocks continued in Philadelphia for years and years and years, uh, with the result that people have to repeatedly flee the city. And it got so bad that many people worked in Philadelphia. They kept their stuff there, but at night they would go out to sleep in the countryside for fear that an earthquake would come in the middle of the night and their house would collapse on them. And some people did that for 20, 30 years. So they would have a home in the city and sort of like a camp out in the country. And they would actually go out there and sleep at night. So you had this rhythm of this constant flight and return in and out of the city. So much so it just became the routine part of their life. And after a while, uh, the emperor Tiberius Caesar helps Philadelphia to recover from all of these earthquakes and aftershocks and rebuild uh, the city. And out of gratitude, the city was changed its name from Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea, or New Caesar. And it bore that name for about 30 years. And then it changed its name again. It was renamed Flavia, in honor of the emperor Vespasian, who one of his numerous middle names was Flavius. The local residents still called the city Philadelphia, even though the city's name officially had been changed twice. And I mention these facts because they have a bearing on the promises given to this church in this letter, as we'll see. As a result, the city is dependent upon Rome, and its economy is weak. Both Smyrna 
and Philadelphia lacked resources. And of course, they're the two churches who are commended in these letters. They're not rebuked at all. So this is a good church, except they're poor churches. And Jesus says this church has little power. These churches had much in common uh, with each other, Smyrna and Philadelphia. In his commentary on Revelation, Leon Morris says, both received no blame, only praise. Both suffered from those who called themselves Jews and were not. Both were persecuted by the Romans. Both are assured that the opposition is satanic. And both are promised a crown. So what we see is that what is little and powerless and weak and inconsequential in the world's eyes is precious to Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that he loves this church. And though he says you have but little power, probably a reference to this church, uh, having little power, being weak, having little influence, having little uh, resources, financial resources, uh, having little size, not very many people. It's not a mega church. It's more like a mini church. And they lack resources, manpower, money, talents, and gifts. But they are a church much loved by Jesus. And here Jesus says in one of the harder verses to understand in this chapter, he says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And that phrase, an open door, and he says earlier, I have the keys of David uh, which open and no one can shut and which shuts and no one can open. Those are direct reference from Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22, the context there is there's an evil king, and God is removing the kingship from him, giving it to a good man, one of his own. And he says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and, no, and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So we have this direct reference back to Isaiah 22. And the language of Isaiah is used to present Christ as the Davidic Messiah, the Davidic monarch, with absolute power to control entrance into the heavenly kingdom. But the Jews of John's day apparently interpreted this prophecy to refer to their own authority to shut the synagogue uh, to those who they felt shouldn't be there, and particularly to those Jews who had become Christians and were, they were subsequently excommunicated. The doors were shut to them. And since the Jews claimed the authority to shut this, the doors, to shut the assembly to Christians... Christ now cites this same passage to demonstrate that it's he, not they, who determines membership and entrance into the true assembly, which is his church. And so the door here is the door into the kingdom of God, which cannot be shut against them, even though the synagogue of Satan repudiates them. And the persecution here appears to be mainly from the Jews, and they probably refer to Jesus as a false messiah, and Jesus comes here and shows that he is the sovereign one and holy and true and the real Messiah. 
And he acts firmly and decisively, and no one can stay his hand. And so the Jews claim to have shut the door to the Messianic kingdom, to those uh, who came to embrace Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Jesus now tells them that he has placed before the Philadelphia church an open door which cannot be shut. Now there's two uh, differing interpretations of the open door. Some take it to mean that the believers in Philadelphia will not fail to enter the kingdom of the Lord, the end times, the eschatological kingdom of the Lord. They will not fail to enter into heaven, in other words. Jesus has opened the door for them and no one can shut it. Others building this case on it, the use of this imagery elsewhere in the Bible, take it to mean that the Lord has set before the church in Philadelphia an opportunity to make the gospel known to their contemporaries. I'm not sure we actually have to choose between the two. Uh, the same door that the Philadelphia believers have entered through is open to others. But I think there's truth on both sides here. Partly because the statement about the open doors immediately follows the Lord's statement that he knows their works. It's right there next to it. And uh, the open door appears to have something to do with that. Um, and uh, that's something to do with what these Christians are doing and what they ought to be doing. That is testifying to the name and to the power of Jesus Christ. And the church's witness will lead to the salvation of others. Additionally, open door is a very familiar way of speaking about missionary opportunity. We see it uh, in Paul's writings four or five times. In Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas returned from the first uh, missionary journey, we read they arrived and gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, he tells the church in Corinth that a wide door of effective work has opened to me, referring to Ephesus, necessitating a longer stay in that city. When he left for Troas in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, a door was open for me in the Lord. And then when he writes to the Colossian church, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So it seems that most of the New Testament usage has to do with this idea of going somewhere and taking God's word with him. He's opening a door to uh, testify to the power and to the name of Jesus. And so I think both work. He's promised an open door to this church, but there's also an open door that they can, in a sense, point others to into the kingdom of God. So it is for them, and it is for those who they will lead uh, there into the kingdom. And Jesus gives this church hope. Remember, it's the, this is a church singing the blues. What they need is hope, and he gives them hope. He starts, he criticizes the synagogue and their treatment of this church, and he says, Behold, I will make of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And this idea of, of people saying they're Jews but are not, 
Apostle Paul addresses in Romans near the beginning in chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Furthermore, it's prophesied several times in Isaiah that the Gentiles will come and bow down before Israel in the last days. One example is Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. The irony here is that in Isaiah it is Gentiles who bend low before Israel. Whereas in Revelation 3, it is the Jews who will bow at the feet of a predominantly Gentile Christian church. And the open door is the door, as we said, of missionary opportunity that stands before the church in Philadelphia. The opportunity to reach both Jews and Gentiles. And that's how the apostles expected the mission of the Gentiles to work that Christ's mercy extended to the Gentiles in the gospel would evoke envy among the Jews who by God's severe mercy would be grafted or regrafted by faith into the tree of God's covenant people. And you can find that explanation in Romans 10 and 11. But it explains this reversal in verse 9 where the unbelieving Jews would come and fall down at the feet of the church, Jewish and Christian Uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians together and acknowledge that their God's the true God and that Christ is the Messiah. And I think it's a grand picture of the progress of the gospel to penetrate even the most stubborn and obstinate and uh, determined resistance. And then we get the last sentence here, which is another tough one to understand. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. In this verse, we have the only mention in these seven letters of the coming worldwide ordeal, which is a major theme of the rest of the book. Now, you may be aware that this verse is often referred to as evidence for the idea of a rapture. The sudden and unannounced removal of all believers uh, from the world before the great tribulation at the end of the world before the second coming of Christ. This is one of the big rapture verses in the Bible. In fact, this verse is the most important verse in the book of Revelation for the dispensational scheme of biblical interpretation. The Left Behind books trade on this expectation of a rapture of the church. And many Christians look at this verse and think God is going to deliver his church and take them out of the hour of trial and completely remove them from suffering. I understand where this view is coming from, and if it happens, I'll welcome it. However, Christians do differ on this, and I'm one of them. I think that a rapture during the time of trials is contradictory to what the entire rest of the Bible teaches. First of all, it doesn't take away from the four essentials of eschatology, which is a study of the end times, which is, I know he's coming, I don't know when, I better be ready, and in the end he wins. And thus we win too. The language employed here does not mean, and the rest of the Bible never teaches, that the church will be evacuated before the tribulation. 
It means that she will be kept, preserved, protected in and through all her trials, and especially the last and greatest trial. Many scholars make the argument that this verse means that God is going to keep you from apostasy, from denying the faith, from denying the name of Jesus in the midst of trial. And that sort of fits the context of these letters because repeatedly Jesus commends uh, some of these churches, not all, but most of them, for not denying my name, for not denying the faith. We see that three, four times in these letters. That God is going to protect you spiritually during a physical outpouring of his wrath on the whole earth. And I think that's very likely since trials are often spiritual and not physical. As we've seen in the other letters, if Satan can defeat us with idolatry and immorality, then there's no need to resort to persecution. Now there's a ton of other verses that speak to this idea of an hour of trial as a period of testing and tribulation that precedes the establishment of the eternal kingdom. If you remember uh, last summer when we went through the first and second Thessalonians, all of Second Thessalonians chapter two, the man of lawlessness, was about this. But that chapter seems to indicate a spiritual battle being waged upon the saints much more than a physical battle. And Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. If you remember the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, in the upper room before he was crucified, it is the only other time in the New Testament that the word keep is used in this same way. And that's in John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The words keep them from, here the evil one, John 17, is the exact same words, phrase, order used in Revelation 3. The only other place in the New Testament it's put together that way. And in John 17, keeping them explicitly does not mean taking them out of the world. His prayer is, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. It's clearly not a rapture verse. They're not to be taken out of the world, but kept from the evil one. They're being protected in the midst of great trials. So I see this as spiritual protection in the midst of the trials that will come. And then the last phrase, those who dwell on the earth, the trials will come upon those who dwell on the earth, occurs numerous times in Revelation and always refers to the church's enemies. Those in Revelation 6 and 11 who murder the martyrs, those in Revelation 13 who worship the beast, those in Revelation 17 who get drunk on the harlot's wine. So while the time of trouble at the end of the age will be a time of affliction for the church, it will also be a time of judgment for the world. It's not a time of judgment for the church, although it is a time of trial. It is a time of affliction for the world, and it is also a time of judgment for the world. And then after giving this warning, who's warning the world, Jesus gives this church wise counsel. Very briefly, verse 11 uh, he gives them wise counsel. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. They're told to hold fast what you have. And apparently they did. 
since this particular church remained faithful to the gospel down through the centuries, even after Islam became the dominant religion of Asia Minor. In fact, throughout the 20th century, the church in Philadelphia has continued to flourish. And though we know there are still Christians in some of the other cities, this is the only one of the seven whose uh, church continues on in the present age. And so not only is Jesus going to preserve them in the midst of trial, he encourages them to hold on to what they have. That is, the gospel which they've heard and believed. And by holding fast to the gospel, no one may seize your crown. Again, another reference to Isaiah 22, where God takes away the crown from the evil leader and gives it to Eliakim, who has been faithful. And whatever the hour of trial entails, Christ's people know that no one can snatch them from the almighty hands of Jesus and his Father. We see that in John 10. Uh, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So not only are they to hold fast, but Jesus is holding fast to them. And because of that, he can give them some amazing promises. Some amazing promises, verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a number of interesting points here as we wrap up. First of all, Jesus promises to make the one who conquers a pillar to the temple of my God. This is a temple which they will never be forced to leave. 1 Peter chapter 2 teaches us, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The same way we read in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This promise makes perfect sense against the backdrop of continual earthquakes which rocked the early city of Philadelphia. Now, instead of being forced to sleep outside and live in fear, God's people will take up permanent residence in the heavenly temple, which even now God is building as the body of Christ. And all those who dwell in this temple dwell in perfect peace and security. Second, Jesus promises to write on each of his people the name of my God and, and his own name and the name of the heavenly city. And unlike their own city, which had its name changed twice to honor pagan emperors, the heavenly city is named by the eternal God and its name will never be changed. 
And again, we have another example of God taking a prophecy given to Israel and applying it to the church. We saw that back in Isaiah 60, back in verse 9. We saw the, the quote from Isaiah 60. And the irony here intensifies when you realize that in Isaiah uh, 60, verse 14, it is the Gentiles who will call the Israelites the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. But here in Revelation, the tables are turned, and it is the church who's described in those terms. Here we read the overcomers before whom these Jews will bow and bend low are given the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So we can see that the perseverance of the saints is in the trustworthy hands of the one who's making the promises, of the one who always keeps his promises. Now, all that stuff is well and good, but how do we hold fast to what we have? Part of it is to believe the promises. As I shared in Sunday school earlier, part of our problem is we don't value the promises in these letters. You know, we, we, they're all about eternal life and coming to the tree of life and getting a white stone and being a pillar in the temple of our God. And we want promises for here and now. And all the promises that are given to these churches are for the hereafter, not for the here. And one of the reasons they're not valuable for us is because we don't think in eternal terms we don't think of the hereafter. We don't think about uh, we're going to heaven. We, we, we have to live in the present. And the promises about the future just often don't seem like that big a deal to us. But I think they should because apparently they're a really big deal to Jesus. And for us to diminish what Jesus says is big and important is a real problem. For Jesus to make great and amazing and precious promises and for us to say, yeah, okay, that's good. We don't live this way. We don't think this way. And that's a problem for the church. If you go to any oppressed churches, these are amazing promises. If we're able to send Amri to Miramar, I can guarantee you the people there would think these promises are just outstanding. And they look forward to them because they're being oppressed and being persecuted. But holding fast to what we have and holding fast to the gospel and not denying the name of Jesus and not denying the faith and keeping his word. It's all easier said than done. That's the reality. It's very easy to say, you should do all that. It's all good stuff. But it's easier said than done. And part of the problem, I think, is because we think Jesus is talking to the church in Philadelphia, not the church in Leesburg. And when he says, you have little power, we think, well, that must be about them. Because you know, we're doing okay, thank you very much. We think we have a lot of power, and we'd much rather depend on ourselves than depend on God. But that doesn't work, does it? We have lots of stories in this congregation about the failures 
that come from trusting in yourself rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you another story along the same lines. Imagine for a minute that you worked for a company named Lehman Brothers. Now let's say you've invested more than half of your life savings. Your, your, uh, all of your uh, life savings or most of your life savings, your stock portfolio, you invested in the Lehman Brothers, which is your company. Well, as some of you know, on September 2008, Lehman Brothers filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It was the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history at that time, entailing over $600 billion in assets. You could say the company didn't have a good year. And as you may know, Lehman Brothers was a major Wall Street brokerage firm that crashed and burned and went bankrupt when the whole subprime mortgage crisis erupted, leading to sort of that worldwide financial meltdown that we all watched. If you want to learn more, there's already been several books written about it. Uh, a Colossal Failure of Common Sense. I love that title. Uh, Lawrence McDonald and Patrick Robinson. Or The Murder of Lehman Brothers. Uh, an Insider's Look at the Global Meltdown by Joseph Tibman. That's a pen name for a uh, Lehman Brothers executive. Both books are enlightening, have lots of information, but according to their Amazon reviews, uh, they were rushed into print too soon and are neither well-written or well-edited. With Lehman Brothers, we're talking about trying to maintain what had become a house of cards. And then the hurricane winds of this Wall Street collapse just came through and blew everything away. And so you've invested your life savings in this company. And now your stock is being sold off for pennies on the dollar. Let's say something like 17 cents a share. And you probably paid $17 a share. Or maybe $1,700 a share. And you're mad. You've lost everything. So you decide you're going to sue. You don't have any money, but this is an illustration. <laughs> so you're not sure who you're going to sue, but you're convinced this isn't fair. You're going to take on the world, and you're going to come up with some kind of case. And so you do that, and you get to court, and you discover the judge hearing the case turns out to have been way more invested in Lehman Brothers than you were, and he's lost far more money than you have even though you're the guy bringing the case. So now, do you think the judge is going to be able to hear the case without showing the least amount of bias? Of course not. He'll probably find some of your arguments quite compelling. So what's the point here? The point is that each and every one of you, at some time in your life, and probably even now, is an invested shareholder this morning. And you have bought stock in a worldview that relies on your good works that you hope and believe will get you into heaven. And now Jesus comes along and he blows away your house of cards with something like category 500 wins. And you quickly realize that your stock in yourself and in your own good works isn't worth anything close to 17 cents a share. However, you can't look at these things objectively because you're too invested. You're like the judge who finds the arguments compelling because they put the blame somewhere else. 
However, if, if you realize, or if you think that the word of God is correct, then you have to change your life. I'll have to change my life. If the word of God is correct and I'm not in charge, I don't get to determine any of the values for myself. I don't get to be the judge anymore. God has spelled out what he requires and he uh, keeps the judging for himself. I don't get to judge myself anymore. That means I don't get to do just an internal audit anymore. Now I realize there's an outside auditor who's doing a comprehensive audit on every word that I've ever said and every thought that I've ever had and every action that I've ever taken. And I can assure you that many of us here this morning are in a much worse predicament than anybody who used to work for Lehman Brothers. Those folks only have financial problems. We're talking here about having eternal problems. So what you have to do this morning is to dump your stock in yourself. Write off your losses and invest in King Jesus with your life, your talents, your gifts, and your whole being. He has a lot more pull than Wall Street. He tells us he is the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. And the one thing you need to learn in the book of Revelation is no one goes up against Jesus and wins. Even us, and especially us. Because after all, he's the king, and he's coming back, and inside and out, he knows your life. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Pray. Heavenly Father, once again, thank you for revealing Jesus to us here in these words, in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Lord, help us to take seriously what you have written here. Teach us how to be people of patient endurance. Those aren't things that we've prayed for lately, but your word tells us we need that in our life. Teach us how to be people who hold fast to the gospel. We don't often pray like that either. But your word tells us we need that in our life. We need to be people who hold fast to the gospel. Teach us how to be people who show others the open door that can never be shut. We don't often pray about that, but your word tells us that we need to be people who, who point others to the open door that leads to the kingdom of God that you have placed before us. Lord, make us kingdom people. And do this for us in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.